Hello friends, welcome to another episode of the Wild User Interviews, a podcast about people, product and crypto. Through these open-ended conversations, we try to deconstruct what makes the leaders in the near ecosystem. And today I am extremely excited to have with me Chloe the Dev. Hey, hey how are you doing? No introduction here. because she's everywhere. So she's running the Marmaje Foundation, spreading happiness and positivity since 2019. She's also part of the near core team on the community side of things. And I suspect She's got her fingers on many different pies, so very excited to dive into all of those areas. Welcome, Chloe. Thank you for the wonderful introduction. Glad to be here. And before we jump in, a quick word from our sponsors. Metapool. Metapool is the first liquid staking solution on Near. When you stake with Metapool, you get all the benefits of staking with Near, which are about 10% rewards year on year and you're helping decentralize and secure the network. However, when you stake with Metapool, you get a ton of additional benefits, such as earning some Meta tokens, and you receive ST Near, which are a representation of the Near that you have staked. What can you do with ST Near? You can take it anywhere in the Near ecosystem and reap the rewards of the many opportunities in the DeFi land. Right now, you can take it to Ref Finance and engage in some farming, and very soon you will be able to use STNIR as collateral on OIN Finance to issue a USD stablecoin and on Borrow Cash as collateral for lending. Staking with Metapool is a smart way to stake. What are you waiting for? And now, back to our interview with Chloe the Dev. Enjoy. And uh, I guess it's our first time actually having a one-on-one like open chat like this. So I'm happy to figure out what we'll get into over the next It hour. is a, I'd say, unique feature of the Near ecosystem, but maybe it is common in crypto more broadly that we feel like we know each other, or at least I feel like <laughs> I know you because I've seen you in so many places yeah, over same, many months. And, and we interact. It's almost like we don't need an introduction, but yes, you are correct. This is the first time that we're actually um, engaging one-to-one yeah, I feel like I'm used to it in the crypto space where I haven't really met that many people. Like I follow so many people on crypto Twitter. They follow me back. We chat. I've learned so much from the various people in the space. Usually it's all online, Telegram, Discord group. So it's nice to take the time to actually talk to people a little more intimately. Yeah, and there's one of the many reasons why I wanted to start this podcast in some ways to convey to the masses, to the public that we are a very open and welcoming community and that there's many ways for people to get involved and then start to escalate their involvement and you know pursue their passion connect with like-minded people but also it is a fantastic excuse for me to actually get some time one-on-one with people yeah Um, i'm glad you put it that way because even for me i started out my involvement in the near ecosystem pretty much doing a bounty for the create base guild which is like just touching the outskirts seeing what near was all about i've been in the ethereum exam for a while and then from there, as you said, I now work for the Near Foundation as the adoption lead. So pretty much all the way from, oh, I'm just going to do a bounty for a DAO, all the way to, okay, I guess this is my full-time job. And now I work for the Near Foundation. So I had a very similar experience. I was very active in the various uh, channels 
I started participating, I guess my first uh, paid opportunity was through the Open Web Sandbox. Mm -hmm. And very shortly after that, I was approached uh, by two projects, actually. Peter from Flux reached out to me and he asked what my day job was. (laughs) We scheduled for a call, but he forgot about it. (laughs) It happened. Everyone's so busy. I guess it wasn't meant to be. And I also got a message from Azim and Diaz and we arranged for a call. It was actually a little bit scary how similar the messages were. He was like, what is your day job? And I was like, have you been talking <laughs> to like each other? That's like the crypto question. What I do you do? Are you up? open to working in Web3? <laughs> yeah, it's, a, it's, it's almost like the tarot lady said, hey, this week, <laughs> job opportunities coming in. And yeah. yeah, they all flooded in at the same time. So extremely grateful that Michael extended me the opportunity to start a guild. And I immediately thought about the product and user experience side of things because I had already gone deep into the product world. Mm-hmm. And the idea of marrying the two was really exciting to me, especially because I feel like Nier is unique building up that user experience side. Having said that, from listening to all the podcasts that I've edited and listening to yourself for hours and hours, it's if I wasn't crazy before, I'm definitely going crazy now. <laughs> what I've realized or what I would like to propose is we start with a hook. So okay. we open with why you're here. I guess like a brief summary of your projects from your words. Mm-hmm. And then we can start deconstructing who you are as a person or, or what leads you to those projects, your vision for the world, what were you doing beforehand, how they've evolved okay. over time. And yeah, hopefully we take it from there. Awesome. <laughs> that sound? yeah. Sounds good to me. Awesome. All yours. Sounds good. So for me, I always started off with, I was a soccer coach for about a decade from like the age of 16 to about 26. Played soccer from the age of two. I played in, I went to St. Peter's University in New Jersey my first year. I played in Leeds in England in college as well. Did triathlon team and through all that, I ended up doing my master's in sports psychology because I was like, you know what, coaching is fun. But I'd like to figure out a way to support more than just, let's say, 20 people or 30 people. And I feel like a lot of like coordination issues in general communities extend from that. The ability to extend what you're doing to more and more people. And that kind of led me to eventually pursue my master's in sports psychology, where like my master's thesis was social support and how either social support or perceived social support can help individuals to with injury prevention and uh, rehabilitation. And that was like my idea where, you know, maybe if I figure out a way to make elite athletes feel supported, they won't get injured as much. Uh, Obviously, as an athlete, I got injured plenty of times. And I always felt, geez, like, what if I didn't get injured so much? What if my teammates didn't get injured? Maybe we would have won that championship. Maybe we would have performed better. Um, It certainly hurt less. (laughs) Yeah, exactly, right? At least it was less painful. So the idea there, as I got into the crypto space, I started to see a lot of the same types of issues whether it was DAO coordination, whether it was back in 2017, different crypto projects with the communities would have either coordination issues or I remember I started a crypto project where we were helping the community run trading bots to support the exchange we were all building around. There was an exchange token where the more volume the token uh, the exchange did, we'd get more payouts for the token. Well, sounds all great and wonderful. And so we ended up actually having a, a DAO, whatever that was, how that worked in 2018, where the idea was we ran a trading bot for the community and we'd give payouts 
out to community members that held the token. But after a few months of that running relatively well, the exchange shut down. So then we started realizing, okay, yeah, fun times. Many victims, many fallen victims. Yeah. So I guess for me, I realized that support comes in many different facets, but it needs to be efficient support, support that lasts, support that an entire community can count on. And that's what kind of led me to try and figure out DeFi and how we can build more sustainable economic platforms for communities. And honestly, there was just so many different things that Ethereum gas prices started skyrocketing. I started realizing that, you know what, maybe um, building a community on layer one Ethereum might not work well for everybody in the world. And so I started trying to find other solutions. So whether it was like XDAI for a while or Polygon, Matic, whatever people call that. Binance Smart Chain started doing its thing and that's a whole different issue. But then I found Near, And what really drew me to that was multiple different things. The idea that we could have proof of stake to support a community. So maybe you don't actually even need to go all the way to DeFi. Maybe you can just support network security, earn some rewards, and that could be used to support a community. And that's kind of what led me to bring the Marma J Foundation to near. And now we have a DAO, we have the Marma J token to try and support with economic stability. We built, we use REF, the decentralized exchange to bring some of those old ideas of instead of us running the trading bots, we can just let the economic incentives of the community work for us. So it's a lot, but that was a, the general pathway of my journey to finally being like, okay, and in this, hopefully next year soon, you know, chunk producers will be available. I don't know, just, I think there's just so much there and it's just been a lot of fun digging in, to be honest. I love it. I love it. One of the things that I like, and I didn't plan this out, especially because most of the guests, I literally know them from the Twitterverse and mm-hmm. without knowing much about them at all, I bring them on board. So this is as enlightening to me as it is for the people listening, the three people listening at home. Is it if any bystander were to look into the near ecosystem or any crypto ecosystem really from the outside and they would see you or me or anyone being really active they would assume that we were basically born into it and that we we've got cables in connected to the back of our head so i really like that you have a very i guess like normal pathway you do lots of yeah. sports you go to university and study something which is aligned with your vision of the world and your interests at the time. And then you're able to find a pathway into crypto because I've got a very similar, I guess, background uh, when I went, I, I didn't play any sports, obviously. I'm a little bit. <laughs> oh gosh. Yeah. Yeah. But I when I play some sports, no worries. Yeah. I should have. Yeah. I didn't want to get injured. <laughs> <laughs> that is a very good reason not to play it's a good sports. Reason. Yeah. I was injured almost definitely more than half of my, uh, like, Life Pretty bad. The other day I took a nap and somehow got injured while napping. <laughs> it I happened. woke up and my knee was out of place and I was like, oh God, I'm getting I'll be walking down the street sometimes. I'll just like drop and hold my fiance. She's like, what happened? I'm like, oh, don't worry. I'm just walking. Yeah. So well, hopefully you'll be able to keep good health at least until we publish this podcast. Crime. But yeah, what I was saying is that I also studied more to like humanity side. I did a dual degree in, I guess, liberal arts. I think they call it in the US and mm-hmm. law. So I did a bit of history, international studies, politics. And when I tell people, everyone's very impressed. The two reactions that I get are, A, I cannot believe they let you into the law. (laughs) And that they admitted you as an Australian lawyer. Um, They must do things differently down there. But the second reaction is that they're impressed that someone with that humanities background 
would have a role in crypto. And I guess an increasingly mm-hmm. a prominent role, if I may say so. Ever since I've seen you in the Telegram groups, you've been all over the place, digging into everything as well. But I think that's a mindset that it takes, regardless of someone's background. Currently, as the adoption lead for the Near Foundation, I've had a hand or been had a lot of fun setting up like dozens of communities now. And most of these people are artists, creatives. They've never taken any kind of university degree in anything technical. Um, or even any industry degree at all. But the idea is, as long as they're passionate about what their vision is for the world and seeing how crypto or Web3 tech can support, usually they end up acclimating themselves quite well, which has been wonderful to see, honestly. It it, it definitely gives near a lot of credit because I think that the technology has been built in such a way that they have dealt with very complex um, scaling challenges, as I call them, the galactic brains lay down the tracks for they the rest of make us. It easy, or... Yeah, well, we just have to imagine how the train is going to look and jam some people in there. So I think that... that's exactly how I usually tend to do it. And I usually try and say I like creating like systems and pathways for people, but near makes it easy. I've been onboarding my friends finally to crypto. I've been my my mother now has a DAO. Oh, she's winning. Mine doesn't have a DAO. <laughs> Mine is doing liquid staking on Metapool, though. Okay, I don't know. As someone who's been in the space for a little while, that seems completely outlandish to me that someone can just come on board. Originally, trying to get a MetaMask account, it's such a hassle saying, okay, you know what? Go download a browser extension. Everyone's, I don't know what that is. I don't know if they've downloaded a browser extension before. The ability to just be like, hey, Go to this app, it'll automatically redirect you, it'll take care of it all for you. My mom just clicks the blue button. <laughs> you know, it's not always the safest interactions on chain. You gotta, you know, click that more info button every once in a while. But the fact that the pathways do exist for people to securely, you know, traverse the, the web three space is been such a big help at near. Yeah, and I think that there's something really something that we need to emphasize in every way that we can because I described to some of my friends an inflection point. Or a paradigm shift mm-hmm. because okay let's get specific you mentioned the gas fees in 2018 mm-hmm. you're a visionary because you can definitely see that even though the gas fees may have compared to what we have now not been super bad clearly there are applications on ethereum that even today people are willing to pay but mm-hmm. your vision is well how is this going to scale over time because not, o- not only is the growth of my app going to be limited because the number of people that can afford to pay decreases, you're going to max out at 200 users. Yeah, I mean, yeah, but I mean, also the cost yeah. of transacting gets higher over time. So you As keep t- yeah. actually pushing the bar down. Eventually you're going to be the only user. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, and there's collaboration. You can find ways to mitigate that. So now you see like DAOs becoming the, like the only entities that can transact on there. One Ethereum, so great. You can join a DAO, vote on Snapshot and try and have some say in what happens. It's not the same. We used to have an application where we'd actually have people manually push through transactions and it was one way. So you'd push through transactions for one way, you'd get incentivized later on and it'd be worth it because you get paid out over time through the application. But once transactions went to even like 10 or 11 guay, you'd notice that went from 35 people willing to sit there clicking buttons to earn incentives to three. Yeah, you're, you're cutting down user base instantly. And that was only when ETH was 100 bucks and gas was between 5 and 10. Now with Ethereum at 3,000, even if gas did go back down to one guay, 
a lot of people still can't afford it. So the like, usability issues that many people don't necessarily track with because they're like, okay, I have more ETH now, so I can afford it. Um, but for the user that has not onboarded yet into the crypto space, it's still a $200 transaction. I can't hear you for some reason, I think. Oh, I, I am such a boomer. <laughs> I was muted. <laughs> no worries. I was like, is it me? Is it you? Okay, well, I'm glad. I, I am so sorry. Out. What I was saying is that it's really important to assess where you, like which category you're in, because a common mistake is to look at the crypto space as a broad monolithic <laughs> and to dismiss it or, or whatever. But I think mm -hmm. that there are many different buckets and you can be in more than one. I'd say one bucket would be Galactic Brain, Alex and Ilya, the yeah. co-founders of Near. <laughs> They're definitely in their own bucket, in my opinion. Yeah, within that very exclusive bucket, when they look at the problem, they think, okay, maybe we can build something different. Mm -hmm. We want to tackle the technical challenge. For you, and I put our, us in the builder's bucket, we just have ideas. We want to execute our own projects. Our role is searching for that uh, substrate to plant our seeds. Mm -hmm. And I'm very open. I've experimented with all the blockchains out there. I've got DeFi on Binance, on Matic, on Avex now. I'm deploying mm -hmm. stuff out to Phantom and Celo. There you go. There you go. I feel like you need to know what's out there. I read all the documentation. In fact, I missed out Solana from $2 to 7 because I was reading the documents. <laughs> Yeah, I, I mean, wasn't getting you miss it. out on something as you read. I remember the first time I actually understood Solana was actually watching like the whiteboard learn sessions between Alex and Ilya and Solana. I was like, oh, I understand Solana now. But that made me actually not get into Solana because I was like, I would rather get into Nier. This seems uh, a little more That efficient. whiteboard <laughs> session for a video from what, 2018? It has got to be the most referenced piece of content that Nier has ever put up there. And I'm going to link it in the notes because it is very telling. And I like it because both blockchains have developed a lot and they've got their own communities and they've got many characters in there. But going back to that one video where you can see the co-founders at the very beginning having some beers in a meetup in San Francisco, you see them in their element Mm -hmm. And for me, it wasn't even about the technical things because what they were arguing about didn't make sense to me. I don't know who was right or wrong, but it was about their vision. Mm -hmm. What is their understanding of the problem that they're trying to solve? And what is their vision of how their platform solves it? And that was a fundamental misunderstanding. So then I was like, mm -hmm. why would you need more than one shard? Their assumption yeah. is the price of computing keeps getting cheaper. So what mm -hmm. we have now will scale according to more computing power in the future. Uh, their mm -hmm. assumption is we rely on third party to keep building the hardware for us to just mm -hmm. spin out more of those. And what fascinated me from Alex is that he's saying, look, you're technically not wrong, although that is a big assumption. The, 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 mm -hmm. Whatever the law is, it's actually been yeah, slowing you're, down. You're going you're gonna, to you're gonna be above. I read the papers, but remembering them is above. I was mind blown because what he's saying is, and I think it was an unfair exchange because it's not Alex's first language and the other guy was a little mm. bit uh, pushy and whatnot. But what Alex says, he, he had like an Elon Musk moment. Like he pauses and he looks down and he's, I don't get it. If you can optimize the algorithm mm -hmm. and spin out this insert mind-blown statement, mm -hmm. why wouldn't you do it? And the Solana yeah. guy just looks at him and be like, yeah, if you could, that'd be amazing, wouldn't it? Like, <laughs> And that's why I think really, I love like, Neil so much. Because it's not even something is... we're trying. Yeah, the idea is 
this is the goal that we know we're trying to attain and the idea is we're going to work towards it. Like I remember when I first came on to NIR, like the reason I took the job at the NIR Foundation, the reason I wanted to work here was because I wanted to, I wanted the NIR ecosystem to get to a point where we needed multiple shards. So my whole thing was, if we can never get to a point where we, we have enough traffic to need multiple shards, how are we going to get to a point where we can test this out, iterate over it and build this out? We all know, all the, the best tweets I'm hearing right now is that it doesn't really matter. We're not really competing. There's not enough bandwidth on Solana to take everyone's traffic. ETH2 won't even be enough for everyone's traffic. We need multiple blockchains trying multiple different ways of scaling to really push the boundaries and gain mass adoption. So if we're at a point where we're already saying, you know what, we're just going to stick here. We're going to wait for third parties to expand and help us out. In my opinion, there's going to come to this point where mass adoption is trying to... The whole CryptoKitties incident, I still what I remember uh, from 2018, where the community was like, okay, fine, let's go to Ethereum seems like fun. And then Ethereum like pretty much broke for the average user. They're like, okay, well, I can't use this anymore. CryptoKitties um, broke it. Yeah. Pretty I'm old much. enough. I own the kitty. You, oh, you hold the kitty. I don't even hold the kitty. I was like, what is this? I don't get NFT. That was me with NFT. I was like, I don't get it. I lost well, that wallet. I, want this. I lost that hmm. wallet. Um, uh, I actually that. had a very, I should have seen these been coming, but I didn't. And I have deep regrets. I was working in a law firm at the time in Sydney. So I bought a crypto kitty for my boss mm-hmm. and one for my supervisor and one for me. But if you recall the crypto kitty game, you can breed the cats mm-hmm. and they can the new the newborn can have different traits of rarity. Mm-hmm. And I did something which apparently <laughs> was unthinkable. I bred the cats before giving them away. And my supervisor was like, did you just like like breed my cat without my consent? Tisk, like this digital cat assault? Unconsensual character kitty breeding. And as ridiculous as it sounds, it did make me feel bad because I was like, <laughs> I think I abused these cats before handing them over like property. It was... <laughs> You know, the early days of many of the digital rights issues that we're going to have to deal with in the future, I suspect. There you go. As a lawyer, I love how this is what you guys this are thinking is why of. I ran away from the law. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's really it's interesting fun. now thinking about that because now with all these creative guilds, for example, you do have many artists thinking about, okay, as I mint my NFTs, what type of licensing should I put on the NFT? How is it going to affect my rights? CryptoPunk selling for millions of dollars. Do you actually have the rights to take that and then make plushies or other assets out of it? So it's been really interesting, like ecosystem in general to be in where we like, we start to figure out how it looks. And I, I like Nier as well. Like One thing I think Nier has going for it on the UX side that most applications haven't even touched on yet is the account model where you actually could start to test some of the waters of i know we have one artist who's trying to figure out how you'd have a dao that managed the digital rights to an asset separately from the actual asset so you can sell those crypto punks all you'd like and the buyers don't own the asset but you actually could sell the licensing as well you have a dao that pays a million dollars for the licensing and then people that can still buy the asset, which seems very interesting. It's fascinating because if you go back to those buckets that we were referencing, we've got the, I guess, like the core builders, um, Ilya and Alex, in the case mm-hmm. of um, the co-founders of Near. Then we've got you and I as entrepreneurs building our projects, hobby projects, testing what's possible. We obviously look for the ecosystem that can host us and that we mm-hmm. feel that we can grow within. But then the third bucket, which is personally the most important one, is the actual end user 
And what you'd be surprised is that not many people think of the end user because we are so early in the ecosystem. My theory is that right now, the investors, the, the builders, the innovators, and the users are all the same people. So within a very small sample size, a lot of people are willing to pay high gas or they're willing to deal with the friction. Some of them have been here for long enough that they don't even realize that it is yep. friction. They Some of them see it as a feature. Oh, a billion dollars yeah. in gas burned on Ethereum. I guess the network is getting usage. It's... No, I think yeah, it's obviously, yeah, there's both sides to it, but I definitely agree. I definitely see that sometimes from some people that have been in this space for a while. And it's definitely like almost alienating to anyone, in my opinion, watching that from outside the space where they're, you see someone say, oh yeah, 2000 Gwei gas, people are using it, NFT drops. But the artists that are sitting there saying, I can't even deploy my NFTs because it will cost gas at 2000. You're alienating thousands of, you know, potential deployers. But you know what, what annoys me? And I just realized is, I'm going to have to edit this out. <laughs> I, I think that the reason why it not annoys me beyond the obvious of if it is so expensive that no one can pay for it, it defeats mm. the purpose of having an open network. But I think that annoys me because it brings back some of the old thinking. Like when I was studying law and even when I worked briefly and a lot of my friends now are still in that industry, they tell you really expensive legal fees they're not a bug they're a feature mm -hmm. they want to hit you over the head with a legal bill that is so astronomically fucked that you never mess with them again going to court it is very expensive and it takes mm -hmm. a very long time in their eyes because they want to force you to negotiate and agree yep. with each other. There's a good argument to that. You want people yep. to obviously sit down with each other and try to work things out amongst themselves. But I just can't accept that the legal system that binds everyone together on the laws is well, the deliberately designed to not only exclude, but to disproportionately favor the ones that have the money or well, that know yeah, how to work the system. Exactly. I think that's the biggest issue where you have this issue. So people turn it into a feature, it's still a bug, but then the issue is it's not a bug for those that can afford it. So you have these elite people who are like, oh, it kind of sucks that we have to spend so much money on lawyers, but it's all good. We can afford it. it, it it's part of our business model. It's fine. But then you have those people who are like, okay, no, like my whole entire life will be screwed over if I don't get to go to court and figure this out. And so I, I think that the whole idea is the same thing, right? Where the idea is you have to come to consensus within the confines of the law, the contract, whatever it is. And so if you're coming to consensus means signing a transaction on the blockchain and you need to do it or else you're screwed, like <laughs> you get liquidated or you can't make a consensus on your DAO or whatever it is. And all the, the people that can afford it, like, oh yeah, it's fine. If Gwei goes to 2000, you can just have some extra, use DeFi saver, but that still takes gas at some point, you're supposed to be spending gas. And I think that's why I love it near so much is because it's designed so that that will like arguably never happen. And it could be high gas for a while, but then you have that. I think the whole idea of dynamic reshuffling within shards to me is like, mind-blowing because even on ethereum I th from what i understand from, i remember ethereum 2 you can, can you give us an overview of what dynamic reshuffling is so the idea in it was the difference assuming between, in five <laughs> yeah so <laughs> the idea of ethereum 2 from what i understand is that you deploy your smart contract to one and so over time certain shards could be more populated because everyone wants to use so for example if makers on a shard 
And it's all, all the DeFi applications want to be on that shard so they can process transactions even quicker. So if they don't want to get liquidated, instead of taking two or three hops between shards, it'll happen on the same shard and process the fastest. On Near, what happens is you can never actually choose the shard you want to deploy to. Or even if you could choose, it would change over time algorithmically. So the idea is every single transaction is a cross-shard transaction. You're always going to have to wait the, arguably a similar amount of time, like between two and six seconds. So you're like, it tries to make it fair for everybody. And I think that's, again, they're trying to solve this issue of, no, we're not creating these, these moats between dApps where, you know, this charge for all the rich people and this charge for all like the plebs, <laughs> the muggles. Just... I, I get it now. And it is a fascinating example of the distinction between the three buckets. Mm-hmm. Because the technical bucket, they're solving very hard problems. So in their mind, and I love it that in innovation, especially when you're doing things that have never been done before, you define your own KPIs. <laughs> yeah, you define, this is something that we ask in the product world all the time. What is the definition of success? How do we know if we succeeded? People can mm-hmm. lie to themselves. It only ever stops with money. Money is the only true final judge because all the other KPIs are very malleable. So when you look at the builder's bucket, you know, the Vitalik and the Ilias and the Alex's of the world, in their mind, they're like, look, we built sharding. Sharding exists. There's a bunch of Mm -hmm. shards. But if we have to draw a parallel, because I'm not very technical and I'm assuming some people listening may be on my level or (laughs) up below. Yeah. um, Let's say that each shard is like a city or even like a state mm-hmm. within a country. There really isn't much point in the one blockchain. Let's say the blockchain is a country and mm-hmm. the shards are states or cities within the country. Yeah. There really isn't much point in being sharded or not sharded if you don't have any ability to travel within those cities. Yeah. And if you do have a model where those cities and states are isolated, then you can see how all the migrants, and in this scenario, migrants would be builders of applications or users mm-hmm. of applications. They all want to be in the most prosperous state, mm-hmm. whatever. I think that's actually a very good way of putting it. And going to the whole, like, what is dynamic restarting? I like the idea is like, you know, you're in your apartment doing your thing, building, and then you wake up the next morning, you're in a new city and you're like, okay, this is cool. You're still safe. You're still secure. You could still hop over to where your friends are. Easily and efficiently. Well, but, Nier you know. is, I think Nier is so next level in that inter-sharding operability that we don't really have a physical world example because I was initially thinking of saying, okay, not only can you travel between states, you have super fast trains, but super fast <laughs> trains, you still got to travel physically. Yeah. It's more and like teleportation, like Star Trek. Exactly. You know? I was going to say, maybe it's like having the internet. So you can be in any city and work. Mm-hmm remotely, fully asynchronous, like we're doing now from mm-hmm. two different islands in the yeah, world. Exactly. But I think it's more like teleportation. I think it's that level of availability and true interoperability. Yeah, I think I would definitely agree. It's just like new paradigm once it gets deployed. And we're not, we only, we're not even sharded yet. So hopefully you know, this fall. So at the, as uh, of the time of this recording, we only have one shard. Yes. I believe testing environment, we're up to eight shards. Yes. Very excited for eight shards, hopefully coming to mainnet this year, 2021. Heard mainnet soon. (laughs) And I love it that you are aware of the challenges because what you mentioned is 100% true, which is actually the official line. There isn't much point in having sharding capability if the number of transactions that you're putting through 
are handled within one shard. Like comf- I think our current shard, the one... Uh, Very comfortably handling well, the We can do one. Yeah. I, I think up to 4,000 transactions per second. It, I think it's even more than that from what I... Probably I, more, yeah, because 4,000 yeah. was testing it in March. Yeah, it's probably going on. I'm sure it could do quite a bit. So yeah, and we're definitely nowhere near four. Well, I mean, the, I look the at average, the blocks from time to time, and yeah, it's so like three <laughs> eight per block. Yeah. yeah, average right now, and we're hitting basically all time highs every day. It's going to be fun because this is going to get published <laughs> in three weeks time. But okay. average right now, it's about three hundred forty thousand transactions on a twenty four hour window. So mm-hmm. you can see how we're doing twenty four hours in what the blockchain can handle in. A minute. Yeah. So we've got a long way to go. Mm-hmm. And I think that the number of transactions is going to go up like like parabolic just because of the number of applications that are coming online. But at the same time, we have a little bit of time. I don't think we should mm-hmm. get complacent. And I think there is reason to get worried if the shards never come online because I guess a lot of the expectation is that scalability. But yeah, we definitely have time to deploy them and test them thoroughly. Mm-hmm. But yeah, as you said, like the most important bucket being that, like the third bucket, the users who might not be as technical, who aren't necessarily going to be providing technical innovations, who aren't necessarily going to be building out DAOs, but those are the users who are going to be checking on their DeFi farms every day and clicking that farm button multiple times. Those are the users that are going to be using Metapool and using maybe auto staking and getting into cheddar. And in my opinion, that's how we get to that point where we need multiple shards. It's the individual users who are going to be using those applications that we don't even know they're on near. So, yeah. I have already experienced when you hit that barrier. Like I was on, I have some positions on Avi on Matter. <laughs> and uh, yeah. when we had a bit of a, I think it was a 20% drop in one day. I had yeah, to go in. Yeah. I had to remove. That was insane. Yeah. yeah, I had to remove some funds from uh, Sushi Swap Farming on on mm-hmm. Matic to pay back some of the loan to avoid getting yeah. liquidated. Or I thought it could have been close to getting liquidated. Matic was melting down. <laughs> I it remember was, that morning. <laughs> it took me minutes and minutes, and the way was like a thousand mm-hmm. plus. The price went up a thousand percent. I, I calculated my trends. I got up. I was like ten percent from being liquidated. I was like, oh, this is nice. Put a transaction through. Twenty minutes later. Oh, okay. I guess if I get liquidated. We should have had a liquidation party while we wait for the transaction to go through. (laughs) Moral support for each other. Yeah. And once again, but the fascinating thing to me was that I left Ethereum. I don't have any assets on Ethereum anymore Mm -hmm. uh, because it was too expensive. It was extremely expensive. Mm -hmm. I have two miners. I have two mining rigs. My mm-hmm. mama, uh, my mom looks after my mining rigs actually back home. <laughs> That's what yeah, he actually I, sent me a photo this morning, which I didn't share because I do have you know, minimum semblance of privacy. But she sends me a photo. She's a little bit older, so she takes a photo off the screen like old people yeah. do. <laughs> Screenshots are not there yet. Love so it. she takes me a photo, and it says you've got a, a payout pending, four hundred bucks mm-hmm. for the value that the <laughs> the mining pool. Yeah assigned to the transfer that is outgoing was 40 guay and the minimum on the network is 110 guay so your money will eventually one day reach you and i was like how ridiculous is this state of affairs that it is too expensive to pay the miners 
that that's when there's in my opinion a large issue like that's i don't know people talk about like the centralization of even like so right now that solana centralized solana centralized very well it may be like i'm not trying to argue that point whatsoever but if the average miner on ethereum can't afford to get their payouts which means they can't actually afford to keep mining which means only mining pools can afford to mine arguably it's yeah. Probably just as centralized. I used yeah. to run, like, I never actually mined on Ethereum. I just run a node for fun. But I feel like the majority of people running nodes are the same. They're not, like, they're not actually mining and providing security to the network. They're just potentially running a node, which gets more and more difficult. What I love about Near is that I've actually run a, a node at Near. Like, I've, I've spun it up. It works pretty fine. Takes a few days, whatever, to sync. Just like the Ethereum node does, to be fair. But the idea, again, with chunk producers coming online, so the idea there is you need less near to be able to provide security, but also the near foundation is going to be supporting those who want to validate. So the idea being that with Metapool, anyone can try out staking. I've, I have some Axie Infinity scholars out in the Philippines and I've sent them some near and they're testing out Metapool and staking. And the idea that anybody can get paid for supporting the network security. And they don't have to actually worry about not being able to get their payouts or anything like that. So. Yeah. There's, I guess there's three components there. And the third one led me to the, the Matic debacle. So the first one is decentralization. I think Ethereum ranks well in decentralization. Um, although some people may want to pick up a fight and go down the route of history and assess who owned what five years yeah, ago. Yeah. <laughs> Um, I didn't go that far back. I'd say, look, I've got some miners. I'm inclined to say it is decentralized. The second group is the cost, which Ethereum we know is extremely expensive. Push mm -hmm. me out. So the third problem is the underlying technology. Matic and, and BSC and these mm -hmm. EVM compatible chains. I don't understand how it works very well at a technical level. What I do know is that I had the bad experience of matting. It was still cheap. I'm not complaining mm -hmm. about the cost of Polygon. I'm complaining that it doesn't work. <laughs> And it didn't what work when it needed right? most. Yeah, exactly. It scale. I think that's the issue. I think, like, even for me, I still have a bunch of assets on uh, Aave on Polygon. I still use Polygon on like the daily basis, honestly. But it's with an understanding that I know that when things get, you know, when, when traffic gets high, I know it's not going to work for me. Um, so like that to me is a usability issue where you like, even on layer one Ethereum, I do have some assets there as well. But I do know that I'm not going to move them. Like, and every time I'm I switch. And yeah. look, I'm the same. I, I've got my positions open there mostly because I don't have the money to pay them back. <laughs> no, I do. Yeah. I do. It's all strategic. Well, it's, it's all efficiency, right? You can only send so many transactions on each chain. So for yeah. me, it's like the NFT purchasing. I have a few friends that make NFT NFTs on, on Ethereum. And so I, I send like one transaction a week or one transaction every couple of weeks. And I know that. I, was, I think I have 50 more transactions before my ETH account is drained, just based on base level by one NFT every two weeks. And I have yeah, quite a bit of fiat value, but it doesn't really matter if you're yeah, buying yeah, NFTs. It's, you know, it, it, it's really interesting. So I guess it, I use these networks aware of their limitations and it, it, it works for me. It solves a problem. I'm deriving value. Once again, it's about projecting into the future. How many people like me are there out there? I'm inclined to say that all the people that had my criteria, high risk tolerance, somewhat technology inclined, willing to endure mm. pain <laughs> for a potential payout. I'm inclined to say that we're all like from my group of friends. Probably the majority of us. Yeah. Yeah. My housemates, you know, my neighbors, no one is in crypto. The pain right now is too high. And 
I see this as a positive, not as a negative. Mm-hmm. It is so early on near that we can do there is very limited. I also have the mom test. My mom has a near wallet. So I guess the two part statement is I use these other blockchains aware of its limitations and I accept them. I shouldn't be you know, giving them too much trouble. But at the same time, I also use them because they are the best available alternative mm-hmm. to Ethereum. And in my mind, and obviously this is all going to be contingent on how it plays out, but what I can see from the inside, the handful of people I'm working with, the minute there is a better option available on near, I'm going to somehow pay a lot of money to switch everything over because yeah. there is a fascinating and subtle distinction that I'm not sure if a lot of people grasp and I probably understand it at a very superficial level. So if you do have a better technical understanding, by all means, go for it, but When we look at L2 solutions or scalability solutions for Ethereum, usually what you're looking at is platforms that have basically the same code or the same supercomputer as Ethereum. You Mm -hmm. can run the same applications. They're compatible. But a lot of them actually run a layer above Ethereum. Mm -hmm. So their security is tied to the main Ethereum network. And that obviously has security implications. Everything from Mm -hmm. the time to finalize the block could be 10 minutes to one week, but also the cost of running the chain. And there's Mm -hmm. a bunch of implications there. Aurora, which is the EVM solution Mm -hmm. built on top of Nier, does something which was wild. This is the thing. I've got a list, which is getting pretty long. What blew my mind from Nier? I think the list would be shorter if we rephrased it. What didn't blow my mind? Right. It, there's um, quite a few things there now, and I'm excited for the rest of the community to realize all of these oh, wonderful Ely things. and Alex are monsters. And, and Alex Square, because there's Alex Shevchenko and, and, and yeah, too many Alexes. Enough. Sometimes I go by Alex because Alejandro is <laughs> um, But yeah, what Aurora does, which is wizardry, I honestly don't know how this is possible. The entire Ethereum virtual machine, the EVM, is deployed as a smart contract on near. So as I understand it, that means that the Ethereum EVM can scale horizontally mm-hmm. in the same way that near can. Yeah. So Some may say that ETH goes down. So I was talking to actually Alex about it the other day or, or Marcelo, someone on the Aurora team. Even if Ethereum doesn't it goes down and something it goes out for a while, Aurora can still finalize transactions with near and it can still keep continuing, which to me sounds like pretty wild. The fact that you are able to build Ethereum like applications that won't go like that won't have the issues potentially of Ethereum. To me, that is ultimately the near's uh, gangster move. You, they've got a <laughs> you very can pay an ETH, but you don't have to be dealing with ETH. Yeah. Well, they've got a very advanced and modern layer one. I am a near native uh, maximalist. I'd love to see. Novel use cases, I would personally, I've got the most basic understanding of Python, but if I had to continue my coding learning, I would go Rust. And everyone that I'm, I come I'm across... Apparently there's going to be some great workshops coming out soon, so uh, oh, maybe please. we can go through I, them together. At least I'm going to sign up. <laughs> yeah, there you go. At least sign up, do a couple of tutorials, see where you get Everyone can shame me publicly if I do not uh, proceed with them. But yeah, even everyone I come across, I recently was the mentor for a hackathon that my Mm -hmm. university, the one that I attended, the law school held, which is hilarious. After I had the walk of shame and I walked away from the tribe, (laughs) renounced my legal status. Take you back to run hackathons? 
Look, credit where credit is due. I think it is great that even though it took them a very long time to even believe that technology or, or that sort of knowledge was relevant for law students, I'm happy that they're starting to incorporate it now. Um, so anyway, I mentored a team and some of them were computer science law, first cohort mm-hmm. that they run that double degree. I suggested it when I was at university. Back very in cool. You know what they told me? Law school did not see the value in computer science law. Now you see all these very wealthy crypto engineers like, I need help. Please, lawyers, help me. So, I mean. But you know what the problem is? Assumptions. I'm, I haven't spoken with anyone. This is my perception of it. Mm-hmm. The, there's two models in Australia, in Melbourne, when you study law. The first one is what they call the Melbourne model, which is really the American model. Okay. Under the Melbourne model, you have to study anything else as an undergraduate degree. Mm-hmm. And then you come back and do, you do law as a master's. Yeah. So it's still the same content as law as, as an undergrad. But the logic is that you have more life experience. Yeah. And yeah, that's like what my cousin did. He did like an English degree and then he went and did his master's in law. Yeah. So. yeah, that's that's uh, my understanding is that's the American model. And here is very sneaky because they charge you master's fees. <laughs> and it is horrifically expensive, more so than undergrad. My university stands proud to have the double degree model. So they also believe that lawyers should have a generalist education. Mm-hmm. No one should just know the law. You need to be embedded into somewhere else in society. Mm-hmm. We have mostly liberal arts law, but there's like a lot of commerce law, science law, engineering law, you name it. It's pretty now, cool. The crazy bit is that but for the small cohort of engineering law, which are in very high demand. For most of the double degrees, the law faculty saw themselves as the more valuable degree. Mm. And they saw themselves or their students as if they were offered a law in the job, that'd be the highest possible option. Yeah, sure, you can go work as an accountant if you have a commerce mm-hmm. law degree. But to them, that's because you didn't get a job offered a yeah, job. So as law, law was the, yeah, for but sure. But now with computer science law, the truth is, it always comes down to personal choice. And I do know a computer science law student who wants to be a lawyer. It's always personal. But in the grand scheme of things, the computer science degree is the hottest. Like they're mm. getting haunted down like hawks. I, I they have imagine. job offers and paid gigs, big money before they graduate. So anyway, that was a long-winded way to say that I was mentoring this team. Oh, I forgot what I was trying to say. You're, you're saying they had a hackathon going and you're mentoring the team. I can't remember exactly what it was about, though, but I forget things quite quickly. No, usability. So. Good thing that I can edit things out. <laughs> right? I always do my live streams live, and so I'm just ranting and talking, and yeah, it's quite So when you blank, you're like, oh, shit. Pretty much. There was something about the law. <laughs> anyway, we'll go back to it. Point of the story is, yeah, near very exciting, very early days. I am surprised that Aurora has taken a little bit longer than expected because we had a public launch back in March or May. Mm-hmm. I, I do think that we have enough visibility into what they're doing. The roadmap is on the website. I, I read their weekly updates and I'm not technical enough to understand uh, what they're up to or how long it may take or the level. From my understanding, they're just, there's like applications that are on test that now, like pretty much, 
I don't know if it's called seeing if you can break things, but seeing if you can deploy things potentially is a better word way of, of putting it and making sure it's 99% EVM compatible, but they're like pushing those last barriers to make sure that everything works exactly the same as Ethereum. I just remembered that very <laughs> long story that I told about law school. Yes. It was all to say that the computer science law kit that I mentioned, that I told him to learn Rust. <laughs> There you go. <laughs> that was the whole story. But yeah, look, it, it is interesting that they don't learn Rust at university. I think they, learn, they have a subject in Haskell, which okay, I had a small, like a mini stroke. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that sounds complicated. I remember when I was doing my computer science, I did a, a half a semester of computer science last year. I dropped out because I got a position being a research intern. So I was like, that sounds like more fun. But we're doing C. I'm pretty sure. But I feel like they just want you to learn something simple enough to teach you the basics. And then they understand, they feel like you can go learn whatever you want after. So I feel like Rust would be fun. Well, everyone who's in like systems programming or networking is, oh, go learn Rust. So that's uh, I'll take those galaxy brain advice. I think that Rust world itself would have different categories because I know that Near itself and, and Solana and uh, Cosmos, all these base layers have been written in Rust. And it is the go-to language for like systems, like you can do a very low level and manage the memory and you know, yeah. insert technical terms here. What's fascinating is that even though Rust is one of the smart contracting languages for Near, what Mike Purvis told me, and we can hunt him down and you're probably working with him already on the workshops, what he told me is that what you need to know of Rust to be able to write smart contracts in Near successfully it's actually just 16 things. And I've had the pleasure to talk to him in a couple of ecosystem calls on mm. Twitter, and I'm trying to chase him down for the podcast. Which I, I, I saw those tweets. Yeah, allegedly he's too busy. But yeah, I thought it was fascinating because it makes sense to narrow down the scope of a very powerful, flexible language into what the smart contract needs. And coincidentally, I was talking to a dev recently. I think it's fine if I say his name, Lucio from Metapool. Mm-hmm. He's fascinating. He's got many years of experience and he entered a Solana hackathon a while back and the team won and he joined the team on that side of the aisle as well. So he's got plenty of experience now on both Solana and Near. Mm-hmm. And I asked him, my actual intentions were to take projects from Solana and just fork them onto Near. And I, my assumption was if they're both reaching identify the account model and the parameters mm-hmm. to change and then let's deploy that yeah, yeah it's, it's, it's forking summer <laughs> <laughs> but no he not, told me not that so easy not so easy yeah this is the mind of a liberal arts student <laughs> <laughs> yeah he told me that he's like look no solana is completely different and to be honest it's a nightmare he told me it's a nightmare yeah, like yeah. If, I have a friend that works for Figment, and so he does some of the tutorials for both Solana, Near, a bunch of different blockchains. And he's yeah, deal. If you're gonna learn Rust, uh, fine, have some fun on Near, build some smart contracts. He's like, yeah, don't go over to Solana. Don't think just because Rust is the same. Yeah, Near has the the dev tooling team and like crazy people over there doing some amazing work. Yeah. Look, credit where credit is due. Figment learn, and I'll include them in the notes. Amazing. Like when yeah. I say that I've got basic Python, I mean like basic Python. <laughs> like I can follow yeah. a tutorial step by step. And There you go. That That's pretty good. So I, I did the Figment Learn uh, pathway for Nier mm-hmm. from scratch. Like I had to set up the dev environment on my new computer. Very proud of you. Very proud and of you. I was like, oh my God, 
it was actually a struggle because I was running out of memory at some point in time. So I deleted Xcode on the, uh, which I did not know had a bunch of dependencies attached to it. So then I had to reinstall it. it. Yeah. Some things were, at, it, it was. Yeah, I don't dev on my Mac anymore. I definitely pull up my Ubuntu uh, server for that because I know people love it, but uh, I'm not technical enough to try and. I'm happy to accept that I am a sucker. Some people spend $2,000 on an NFT. I bought the Blue iMac. Right, there you go. <laughs> and it is strategically placed in the middle of my room so I can appreciate it from every angle at every time of the day because I work from home and I'm in lockdown still. But what I was going to say is that the Figment Learn pathway is brilliant. For a total beginner, both to coding mm -hmm. and to near, I was able to go from dev environment, CLI, just like step by step. It was brilliant. I was telling my friends, like, I'm spinning out testnet, these, I'm prompting yeah. the blockchain and, and doing transactions, all, all with code. So now I feel like when people talk about, oh, we don't have it available yet on the wallet UI, but you can mm -hmm. do it from CLI, it kind of clicks. Now you know what I, it is. I slowly you know. get. And when yeah, Mike I, told me that the, the they're working, one of the core product uh, projects now is to rewrite the CLI in Rust and something, mm -hmm. at least I know what they're talking about, like loosely. But I think that's like a huge first step for many people. We're talking about that third bucket of people who might not be getting on board yet. I think these courses, like the Figment Learning courses, especially like the NFT, the Deploy NFT Smart Contract, I think that kind of helped to understand, okay, what's happening here with Mintbase, when I interact with Paras, like what's actually happening when I buy an NFT. I think the ability to go through CLI and call a function in code really does help. You might only do it once or twice in your whole life. That's fine. But once you can read a smart lasts forever. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Yeah, look, I know that Nier is putting insane amounts of effort into our in-house education programs and there's everything from the top end uh, near certified developer program yep. so if you have any coding skills and you want to have work yeah. directly with pay to pay to learn or learn to earn yeah that's the new thing now learn to that's learn. it's beautiful i've been learning a lot about them because nearest pano is very active with that so yeah look nearest pano is amazing back in the day in march or february back even, in the day yeah, I know. I've I've got one gray hair. Yeah. It's been a, it's been a long time. Yeah. yeah, but but Claudio, who's now in Metapool and he's doing some work for the Near Foundation as well, entrepreneur in residence, sounds like a lovely gig. Yeah. <laughs> he he reached out to me and he's like, "Hey, you're a Venezuelan. He's in Mexico, and we started joining forces to get Near Spano off the ground." And I can't give him enough credit because his vision from the very beginning was like laser focused. Mm -hmm. uh, no pun intended. And he was like, look, the only way that we can make this work and grow is if we have developers in the ecosystem. It mm -hmm. is extremely early in near. There aren't enough people building. There's a lot of demand for developers. Let's create pathways for people that have the technical ability in our region or, or the ability and ambitious. They want to challenge themselves to mm -hmm. learn. Let's create the pathways for them. And just start. Yeah, start turning out like applications. In my opinion, one of the things that Ethereum does have is that ecosystem of developers who want to build all the time, build new content that adapts, interact with others. I think Near is getting there where we're starting to see, you know, people have the ability to deploy apps you know, on Mintbase with JavaScript or with assembly script and deploy. We have DAOs building new things. And so I think 
we're getting there. And near Hispanos are doing a wonderful job, in my opinion, of now yeah, again taking over Metapool and deploying things there. It's now part. Yeah, I mean, I agree. OIN I think. And, yeah. I think that the the first wave of developers is a Venn diagram. You've got the crazy misfits, world travelers, visionaries, mm-hmm. unconventional people, and they've got coding skills already. And they're able to teach themselves. They're they're building out the tools themselves. That is a very small group. I think that Nier is doing a great job at, obviously, we have a lot of these people, (laughs) thank God. But I think that we're doing a great job at the next tier, which is you may just be a normal person who is able to join a team as a developer and actually Mm -hmm. build that ideas. And you may already have some technical experience or maybe you're technically inclined and you just need the resources to learn. So we're putting together a lot of excellent education resources to at least, at least uh, carve out those pathways, almost like mm-hmm. a funnel of people to be onboarded. But what I find fascinating is that this is getting weird, isn't it? <laughs> I don't have enough hands. It's actually like like a three-way relationship or a triangle because you've got normal people who are able to code. And if we show them the pathways, they can be onboarded to the ecosystem as developers. But then on the other side, you have the visionaries and the crazy people who would identify near as the playground to execute their ideas, mm-hmm. but they may be lacking the development skills or they just need to grow their team. The truth mm-hmm. is you can start as a visionary coder. You can do that for a long time without burning and dying. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You eventually need to find, and I think that's where the community is really what brings people together at near where if you are that visionary who can't actually code, Nier is the, kind of the, a great place where you, you can start your guild or start your community. And all of a sudden you could, with the Nier, Nier Certified Developer Pathway, you can, I think one of the coolest things for, for me is that when someone's like, hey, I'm a developer, I want to learn more about Nier, I can be like, okay, well, here's Nier Certified Developer Program. You can just go through that. And when, within one week, You'll, you might not be like a super coder on a, you know, in Rust or with Nier, but you'll understand how to go through testing, how to deploy a smart contract, how to build on Nier. And I think a big statement, and we can structure this as a challenge mm-hmm. to the three people listening. Tag us on Twitter if you're listening to this. We can pose this as a challenge. I would say that the Nier infrastructure is so good and the learning material that they're putting out there is of high standard and getting better and more things coming online. Even if you are a product person or a designer or a creative problem solver looking at having your own project, I would strongly encourage you to go through these workshops. If at the very least you may identify them that they can be improved in some way, please give us feedback. I'm sure that there can be some sort of a bounty or reward. Near Learn Club, you can log in with your Near account and you can leave feedback right on the website and earn Near Learn tokens. Oh, there you go. Learn tokens, uh, yeah. So they already built it right in. You're a time traveler. It's already been built. (laughs) (laughs) So I'll make sure that in the notes, I list all the pathways. I mentioned early days, Figment Learn was excellent mm-hmm. for me. That is still there. It is still valid. We have Near Learner Club, Near University, Near Certified mm-hmm. Developers Program. YouTube, to me, YouTube being free is almost illegal. It's great. I like, spent years they, Are they, are they YouTube, sucking my so. soul? Like, how am I paying for... YouTube has a PhD worth of content in there. Yeah, yeah. I would it, definitely, it's incredible. There's so much wonderful content. I still remember I the, the new SEC chair. I can't remember his name anymore, but he taught the MIT crypto economics course. 
and it's available for free on YouTube. Brilliant. And that was probably one of my favorite courses that I've ever taken on YouTube. Jesus, I have to go look at it. Yeah, I'll send you a Put link. Put it in the show notes as well. There you go. This podcast is an education as well, PhD <laughs> level. Get I want to visit um, definitely on tap source because now that I've got my own YouTube channel, I pay a little bit more attention to the views and the metrics. Your channel, gold source, oh, needs more eyeballs. You. Some people are like for real when there's categories in the channel. Like it's been organized in a way where you can identify what you need and like dive in. Mm-hmm. There is uh, live streams, there is events, there's deep dives, there's everything. Another channel that has a similar structure, which is a good indication of like depth and quality and something for everyone, is the Near Protocol YouTube channel. Oh my God, so like I swear to God, there. I paid an obscene amount of money for university and I've learned more on YouTube on the Near channel. Yeah, you could watch the, the whiteboard series, Lunch and Learn. The, all the engineering teams have their they have their calls on YouTube, and I've learned so much just from following those weekly calls and being like, "Oh, so that's how near sharding might be implemented. Oh, that's how Aurora is being built." And even Aurora has their Friday night calls on YouTube as well. There's so much content. I swear that I know that Matt Lockyer, he was the dev developer relations near. He's now doing a near-related but separate venture. Very mm-hmm. exciting things happening there as well. But my joke was that I feel like near should have been able to offset Matt's salary <laughs> as a tax deduction because Matt's videos are like, yeah, it's almost like charity. Like, how can they be giving away this for free? I would send those to every single dev. I was like, how do I build on near? Here's a link from Matt. How do I build an NFT platform? Here's a link from Matt. How do I incorporate Telegram into Near? Here's a link from Matt. Literally everything you wanted to do is probably still in Matt's YouTube channel. A hundred percent. And it's interesting that, especially because it's so early days, when people start to toy with their idea of crypto or what to do with a blockchain, most of us like land in the same kind of ideas loosely. Mm. So most of those things have been covered. Like I've been blown away. Like for instance, I'll give you a specific example generative art i was really interested in creating art with code and in Mm -hmm. creating art with i guess there's two ways to do it with code one is you tell the computer to issue patterns and color and background Mm -hmm. and then the other one which i guess is technically simpler is more of an assembly line you've got a bunch of components and the computer mixes and matches and issues and means it's very hot. The profile picture movement is very hot. The swiggle mm-hmm. dial is very hot. Yeah. So I was really interested. How could I do something similar or near? Matt has more than one video, actually. Yeah. And it gets better. And if there's anyone listening to this, once again, is an opportunity, big one. Matt has created a few projects, including Generate, GNR8, mm-hmm. that are there on Testnet. He's too busy to deploy on mainnet. The code needs to be polished a little bit. It can certainly use some work on the front end and the UI and the UX. But as a hobby project, to learn, to build on top of something that is already there and that has insane potential. I actually feel bad for Matt because an exactly similar project on other chain went on mainnet and those arts are selling for tens of thousands or 
And there is a Creative Coding DAO. So if someone is wa uh, watching this video at some point in the future and wants to go to Matt's YouTube and take the generate off testnet and maybe deploy it on mainnet, there is already a guild out there to support you with funding or resources or a community to test out the application. So I think that's again, where if you're just a, maybe an idea person who wants to take this to a hackathon, you could definitely receive support there. This is an excellent segue into, I guess, we didn't really touch much into Marma J, so we can go back to that if you want, but I'd like to dive a little bit deeper into your role as community with Nier because mm -hmm. you've given us an overview and I'm obviously leading one of the guilds. There is very strong collaboration between guilds and I see it like, like having superpowers. We do one thing, part of the user experience and any other little thing that we can think of, we've got almost like a support team. We're all mm -hmm. working independently but it's just brilliant to have so many groups in parallel, everyone working to grow their own community and knowing that we can leverage each other's resources. Mm -hmm. I guess that the most important thing there would be the resources uh, from the foundation to the guilds mm -hmm. and from anyone in the community wanting to engage with those guilds or their own separate projects or whatever it may be. Yes, what can you tell us about the state of community today, how to get involved, opportunities, challenges maybe? Yeah, I, I'll start with the challenges because I feel like that's usually, we'll go from the challenges into the wonderful opportunities. So I feel like the challenge now is figure, the, the people that aren't necessarily, don't know what they want to do yet. And that could be difficult, especially when everything's new. It's difficult to know, okay, what is a DAO? How do I get involved? What do I do next? And so we've tried to spin up as many guilds or communities as possible where we have communities that are already doing a certain theme. So I've been focusing mainly on the creative guilds or creative communities. And then we start with CreateBase, where it's anyone who wants to build on Mintbase, you go here. And so now we have this community of people where if you want to build an NFT platform or experiment with NFTs, you can go to one place. That kind of led us to the, the Near Music Guild, where anyone who wants to make audio NFTs can go there. And then we have a location-specific guilds. We have associations that are creating guilds. And so many people who already have, so then into the, so that might be the issue if you don't really want to do yet, you might not know where to go. But if you do know where you want to fit in and you're already a creative or you want something specific, there's probably already a guild within the, within the near ecosystem that you can jump into, whether it's a Telegram group or a Discord channel. And these guilds are already funded from the Near Foundation to support individuals. Yeah, so you usually submit a proposal for what you want to accomplish. The guild full of community members will actually decide, hey, this seems like a good idea. We're going to fund it. And then they just submit a retrospective back to the Near Foundation saying, hey, look, all this wonderful stuff happened. We would like more funding, please. And so I think, honestly, for many people, my advice is just to kind of come in and get involved. For example, if you've never minted an NFT before, there's guilds that will walk you through the process. And so if you're completely non-technical and you're like, I don't know what any of this stuff is, you can just come in and say, hi, hey, how, how are you doing? I'd like to try this cool new stuff. And someone, will, someone is incentivized in the community to walk you through it and help you. If, you've, if you're like, hey, I want to start a community and it doesn't exist yet. We had someone wants to do a graffiti DAO, for example. And they want to wow. get graffiti artists from around the world. And they're actually doing you DAO. DAO. Out of prison. <laughs> there you go. We had an idea for a prison art DAO where they were going to have prisoners create it's art. The and same then, people graffiti. Yeah, there graffiti. you go. Trying to spread, spread the funds around. Um, no, I love it. Um, yeah, but I think the idea is honestly just trying to find a way 
for an individual to get involved. What we really try and do is figure out how to support the individuals with an ecosystem, especially the non-technical ones, because as you said, if you're technical, you're probably just going to go to the docs, go to testnet and try and deploy something for fun. But when you're not technical, you might need a community to support you. You might need someone to ask questions to along the way. And I think that's definitely where the guilds program has a lot of support. The best place to honestly get information there is going to the near forums. I know it's not the easiest to, to, to navigate all the times, but if you go to the creatives, if you're a creative watching this, you're not technical, but you like creating any kind of digital assets, art, music, uh, whatever, creative coding, even you can just go to the creative section on the near forums and there is... I think 19 to 25 guilds already established. They're all, you know, from around the world. And there's usually a place to get involved. When I talk to creatives now, I'm using them four, five, six links at a time for different Telegram groups they can get into. So if you ever want to just ping me and be like, I don't know where I'm supposed to go, I'll definitely let you know where to go. But yeah, creatives in the near forum is definitely a great place to dig in and get your feet wet in the near ecosystem, in my opinion. I think it's really funny that I say that I ran away from the law and I feel like I am at home. I'm finally amongst my tribe. I love how open crypto is. No one asks you about your credentials, mm -hmm. your background. It's just like, do you show up? Are you curious? Are you ambitious? Can you contribute? It's a culture of experimentation more than competition. Mm -hmm. You try to complement each other. And the truth Agreed. is, this may be the golden era because there are more jobs to be done than people. And there is, is way more capital true. than people. So it's actually a really good way to be really uh, patient and supportive of people to let them rise as high as they can. I remember yeah. in 2016, and I thought I had missed it. I was going to Bitcoin meetups in 2016 uh, here in my there city. You go early, early. And uh, one of the guys who was the, the Bitcoin guru at the time he was like, look, this is the only industry where you can be an expert in six months. And I was like, nah. So I started so going. So true. I founded, I was among the founding team of the Ethereum Melbourne meetup here in Melbourne. Mm -hmm. And it, I wouldn't call myself an expert by any means, but it is fascinating because I have seen over and over again how as long as you have that open door policy, anyone that shows up has potential to go in any direction. At the moment, it is amazing that we have all these guilds and support groups that are leading the way so we can more easily place people. But it is also very good to know that if there isn't anything, even if they are in prison, <laughs> there is also a role for them. And an example of, of this, I guess a personal example is I hand out my Calendly link like candy. And even from my interactions on the Discord server, on Telegram, even on Twitter, anyone that messages me, uh, a DM asking a question or they have a project, I'm really happy to jump on a call. And if they don't fall squarely within the product and user experience guild, although I do really love having ideation sessions and strategy sessions and helping people work out if they have a product, if they have a project or, or how to take it to market, whatever. But if it's not us, the same as you, I give them a ton of links and resources mm. and try to connect them with people. We have received a lot of help from the Human Guild, from OWS, from mm -hmm. Guild Structure in general, even just randoms online. And Random online are great. Uh, even for me, I love it. Like I'll even tell people, even if they don't aren't ready to jump into a community yet, a lot of times you can learn a lot just from like lurking in a community chat and learning from what the other, other people's pathways. So I think what one of my best advice is just try and even join a Guild chat 
and just read through the pinned messages, read through the links, read through the proposals that have been passed previously, for example. Um, I was talking to an artist today, for example, and they were like, they were honestly just going through the Sputnik DAO uh, approved proposals for all the guilds and seeing like what ideas could they have, what might get funded in the future, try and give themselves ideas. And as you said, there's always, there's more than enough capital and never enough ideas, in my opinion, to iterate over and implement. So if you have an yeah. idea, there's probably a space for you to implement it on near. Yeah, and I think one of the really interesting aspects as well that it may be worth saying out loud, and it was funny because I guess I was always aware of it, but now that I recently joined the marketing DAO, we kind of are taking into account more as a guiding principle. Often when people think about receiving funding, whether it is from the NIR Foundation or from a VC, I think that the assumption is that there has to be an expectation of returning value, almost mm-hmm. like an investment, or we've got criteria that it's pretty standard in the real world. But what is fascinating about the, the crypto world, but I'm going to talk in particular about the near ecosystem, and please correct me if I say something wildly out of line, <laughs> and I'm speaking as an individual, I am not representing the marketing DAO or well, any other it's, it's great to hear a community member's aspect of how the marketing DAO or marketing vert- vertical works, so it's awesome. Yeah, look, we have had to deal with, if I had to put in a timeline, we had a much smaller community and near was very lower value. Now the community is growing a lot. Mm-hmm. It's harder to stay in touch. We no longer know each other on a first name basis. Yeah. And the proposals keep coming in for larger and larger amounts. Mm-hmm. So the challenge that we have is, look, hypothetically, and I'm not saying that this was the case, but if we were super loose in the past approving mm-hmm. things, or if we were super strict in the past approving things, mm-hmm. or if we overrepresented or over-indexed different initiatives. The challenge now is, okay, how do we stop, pause, and reassess to make sure that everyone has the opportunity now as it sits? In some cases, we would be a little bit more strict, or I guess we just try to get more information. Like, for instance, mm-hmm. one of the things that we've discussed, which I don't think it's outrageous, is if we're getting into a series of... Uh, uh, funding in, in series or what we may call like a, like a working relationship. Mm-hmm. Maybe we escalate from a pseudonymous account on the governance forum and we jump on a call just to get yeah. to know each other, to build that report and that trust. Well, I that think that definitely makes sense. Like even for the creatives DAO, for example, we usually will, like we, all of the guilds that we fund are usually on a rolling basis, which is great, but we do usually make sure that we meet with people at least once to be like, Hey, this is the process. We need you to apply for a retrospective at the end. We need to make sure that as you get funding, you're going to actually report back on everything. You have metrics. While we do, I think for the creative style specifically, and I, I will say this because I do help co-lead it, but we are pretty, I don't know if loose is the right word, <laughs> but we do try and ensure that community members that have, like they're valuing their own ideas and they're implementing them in their own communities. So it's, it, in my opinion, it's very difficult as like an individual to say, this is not worth it or this is worth it. Yep. And it really helps when someone's publicly stating, this is why I think it's worth this much. And this is how, these are the goals I want to accomplish with this amount of funds. And then usually because we have so many other communities doing similar work, my usually go-to is I'll take a different proposal from a different community and say, this community did this much work for the same amount of funds. Do you still feel like you need this much? But yeah, usually yeah. The, the community usually governs themselves at some point, but it is well, definitely a challenge to work through. It is fascinating because it really depends 
what is it that you're paying for? In traditional startup land, there's two models for pricing. There is cost-based pricing. How much did it cost you to produce? How much mm-hmm. is it is your time worth as a professional? And then there's value-based pricing. Mm-hmm. How much value are you creating for the user? How much are they willing to pay to receive that value? So it may only uh, take me an hour and I see myself it's $100 an hour. I could invoice you for 100 but if I'm solving a problem that to you is worth 10000 then I can invoice you 700 1000 yeah. <laughs> For you, it's a fantastic deal. We all win. Mm. So the challenge with this DAOs is that, as I said before, it is not a strictly transactional relationship. Mm. So in some ways, and, and we do this in the marketing DAO, we see a lot of applications through the lenses of like passion projects. Mm-hmm. If people are doing something that they were going to do anyway, Mm-hmm. Because they really like Nier and they're hoping the ecosystem grow. We want to reward them for the time. And we want to mm-hmm. encourage them to stay with us and to keep onboarding people. So in that sense, it's a hybrid between they're adding value to the ecosystem. And there are some extremely loose metrics around that. Mm-hmm. But also they're putting some time in. And in yeah. some ways, I guess we want to encourage them that if they can, to just keep up the good work and keep spending that time supporting the near ecosystem and continue yeah. what they're doing. Yeah. So it's interesting how I a hundred percent agree with you. Some applications, it's actually way better. If somebody says, look, this took me three weeks and I'm a professional videographer and these are the fees to be honest, I don't think anyone is going to say you're too expensive as a videographer. <laughs> look, if you did the work mm-hmm. and the work is good and you are a professional and had we gotten the same piece of work done by somebody else and we engage them as a professional, we would pay them anyway. So I think that sometimes that transparency is good. On the other hand, sometimes people making the case of, look, I'm making this beautiful art and every day or every weekend I'm engaging with 50 people at a local arts market and people ask questions and we may not be able to track whether they're signing up for Mm. me or whether they're buying the art, but you can see how it is that they're almost like ambassadors to the brand. Mm-hmm. They're not really required to do it. It is a passion project. And if we can support people in, in that journey. And I think I it's that, also about the fact that we're distributing. In my opinion, I see it as almost on a line item for the Near Foundation, like a responsible distribution of Near. And I see it as these Near tokens have to go from the Near Foundation to the community and hopefully to communities that are supporting the community who are you know doing work and bounties and gigs in my opinion at a certain time yes of course we have it's important to provide people with incentives for the work they're doing if you're a videographer and you're doing five thousand dollars of work you should get five thousand dollars worth of you know incentives but again i think it's also very important to incentivize people that are like if someone's going to a local art market once a week and like okay i'm talking to one year well, maybe they don't mind going three times a week. Like maybe it wouldn't be that big of a deal to go more often or maybe they talk longer. Well, they give out more near wallets if they, they had more near incentives. So That is a massive uh, point. It is not our money. We are holding it on behalf mm-hmm. of the community mm-hmm. while we hand it over. So in many ways, we're just like a safeguard to make sure that it is fair and that no one is abusing the system but the money has to go to the community. So the challenge is how do you keep the doors wide enough that -hmm. the coins are going far and wide and people are really incentivized and encouraged to do their best work Mm -hmm. 
or the doors aren't too far wide <laughs> that you start to get yeah. the complete opposite yeah. end of the spectrum. People that think yeah. that they can get a freebie and not a freebie, yeah. but that they can game the system. And- well, yeah, I mean, I think it's like just normal human psychology to you know, at a well, no. point, yeah, a certain point like in time. Sports. If it's too easy to continue getting rewarded, why keep working hard? It's it's yeah. a common issue across many ecosystems, but. I think that's what our job is as the marketing DAO or the creatives DAO or whatever DAO that's getting funding from the near foundation to distribute to the community. The idea is our job is to figure out how wide those doors are supposed to open. So for example, for the creatives DAO, we set like a, a vague budget of 2000 near a month per guild, which obviously when near was like a dollar or two, it was like, okay, when 2000, 4,000 bucks, let's figure out our bounties. And then all of a sudden near went up quite a bit and now all of a sudden guilds are still asking for 2000 euro a month and so it's okay so did your value increase with the price of near probably not but they're still incentivized to keep asking for the same amount so then we had to actually alter our budgeting pay now it's five thousand dollars a month uh, as a max payout amount and so the guilds didn't mind they didn't same amount of work or more work as well, but it's that you still need that organization sometimes to ensure that things are running smoothly. Yeah, which is interesting because it, it, I guess it goes back to that distinction I was trying to instill on in people as a call to action, come ask for money, that we want the community to get involved and there are funds for the community. That's why the I just love the term like a passion project. Mm. Because those are the community members that you really want to empower. Yeah. And I guess it, I see myself as one. Uh, and probably I mean, you. same. I, I brought the Marma J Foundation over to Nier. Although I haven't asked for Nier Foundation funding yet. But we'll get there eventually. I want to be a chunk producer. That's my yeah, look, big uh, foundation. I made the same mistake several times. So I know how to troubleshoot <laughs> now. No, I was saying that I just love the term passion project. Because I think it captures our journey. And now I use these podcasts amongst any other ways that we can get to try to find those people that would have the same potential and just to encourage them to come forward. Especially, it's interesting to me that depending on which industry and even which country or which community people are in, sometimes we actually encourage people to do the complete opposite. We discourage people from taking initiative or we're very harsh and very critical on new Mm -hmm. ideas. I don't know, the education system often just like, tunes down creativity in an attempt to pump up productivity. And I think that our weapon, our nuclear weapon is to say, actually, you can have more fun and we can pay you more if you bring in that creativity. Honestly, I have never seen to date my guild or any other guild or any other projects that we approve the breakdown per hours. I did six hours every day for four weeks. No, no, no. We trust in people and we give yeah. them maximum capacity, whether you're working seven days a week, which is technically illegal in your country for employment rules, <laughs> or whether you're doing two hours a day, but of really solid work, we still value that. And I guess it's a beauty of empowering people to really go in any direction that they want. For some, they want to have the next super huge blockchain protocol for mm-hmm. some it's just about creating amazing art or whatever the case may be we want to encourage people to take the leap and before yeah, you and- jobs though <laughs> let's have a calendar yeah. 
Yeah, and I think that's the idea, right? We're trying to empower individuals, empower communities within the near ecosystem. And even recently, trying to get like the city nodes set up, and that's been like an interesting challenge, just because you're taking. Usually, when you know a company is or a foundation is giving funds to people, a lot of times, and you said there's expectations. Like, okay, well, what do you want out of it? Do you want us to like sponsor events? Do you want us to put the near logo on a bunch of things? And it's almost confusing for people. You say no, like you don't have to show off near anywhere. We just want you to bring your own creativity. We want you to start and complete your own projects. And then people start their brains start turning, and they're like, "Oh, so I can just that the idea I had four years ago, like I can just build it." And we're like, "Yeah, that that would be awesome. <laughs> yeah. That'd be great." That sums up really well why I left the law. I always make the distinction. As much as I can sometimes be critical of it, it always comes down to your personality and the pathway that you're in. As you may be able to tell <laughs> through this interview or if you go listen to the other podcasts or in general my work, I enjoy talking to people. I enjoy playing with ideas, experimenting with technology. Mm-hmm. <laughs> my tagline is ambition with ADHD. <laughs> And my more professional tagline is creativity is a renewable resource. We can and we should be encouraging as much of it because mm-hmm. even if it doesn't work out, it's not dramatic. Well, it shouldn't be, hopefully. But even the process of creating, like whether whatever the workout is, the process of creating, someone learned, someone experienced something, something comes out of creativity new. Yeah. So. so I think that creativity is a renewable resource what we do often when we encourage people to come forward for funding is we say, look, we acknowledge that there is unlimited potential within. We want to encourage you to start exploring it and exploiting it. It is impossible for us or for any funder or obviously for the current employer pay, pay, paying them a flat salary to do monotonous tasks. Mm-hmm. It is impossible for us to know where they're going. There may be things where we can assess their interests, their potential, we can assist them, um, exploit that. But that's what I find fascinating about how welcoming and supportive the community is. And once again, that's my experience. When I started receiving, you know, grants here and there, they were like, yeah, don't change anything that you're doing. You're already spending yeah. you know, so many hours a week doing everything think, from Honestly, I think that's the craziest thing that people realize when they come to the near ecosystem specifically is that they, if you're already doing something creative in your daily life, you can probably receive funding from some sort of near guild or some sort of near community for continuing to do what you're doing and just doing within their ecosystem. And I think that's been the coolest thing to watch people experience. That they're not really changing their lives. They're not taking 20 extra hours out of their week to do something new. They're just taking a small shift and probably expanding their creativity and they're being rewarded for it. My understanding is that NFTs really start taking off when we needed to start testing scaling solutions technology but we before moving hundreds of billions worth of value in case we fucked up. Worst case scenario, you can mint your art again. But now it's fascinating that that vertical is rock solid and it's growing in its own ways. Mm-hmm. But now in parallel, we're starting to get all the other verticals that were delayed in time as we were mm-hmm. getting all the foundations in order. So I guess that the open call is, this is probably the sweetest deal in history for creatives. <laughs> But it is not limited to creatives. Like anyone, community organizers, somebody able to so organize a meetup in your yes. city. If you're good at getting speakers, at getting a venue, 
at you know liaising with the foundation to get some money for pizzas or whatever. There's so many opportunities. Um, education, ginormous. If you can do technical documentation, tutorials, there's so much opportunity. I mean, it's all needed. And it's funny, I, I like the term creative because it, it starts people thinking, okay, yeah, NFTs, okay, yeah, I'm going to like, create some asset. But then in my opinion, it just, I, I take it as being very high level, just like being able to take, you know, typical inputs and create something new as an output. So for, as you said, if you're someone who normally has meetups, you're very good at organizing parties for your friends. Every time there's an event meetup with all your friends, you're like, I'm the one who will coordinate. I'll set up the location. Mir has local hackathon nodes where, you know, in your local city, you can get incentivized to throw events teaching about near so that's like a whole thing event that you can throw that you might already be throwing and then promote near and support the one, one of the things that i was going to mention an hour ago <laughs> i i make the note here at the very beginning and then i forgot but it ties in quite nicely with this is it one of the other things that i really like about our journey is it and by a journey, I guess we have to recap because it's been a long time. People are probably going to be listening <laughs> to these over one week. <laughs> oh gosh, you yeah. have to recap it. I think that it's people from many different backgrounds that are non-tech related going into technically a tech field, but still fulfilling roles in a very wide range of mm -hmm. areas that are needed and maybe overlooked or not taken into account when you think of a tech stereotype. And I think that the broad, the broader theme with that is for accreditation purposes or for whatever reason, we see the world through, I, through silos. We've got engineering, science, law, mm. psychology. Crypto and, breaks all of that down. I don't know exactly. <laughs> you where we went, crypto. It's all of it. Exactly. I don't know where we went wrong in thinking that these silos don't talk to each other. Like in the real world, everything is connected. And that's why having a generalist education where you engage with multiple people from multiple backgrounds and the truly rich projects, and especially in the modern world, where we're pushing the frontier, it's in the interdisciplinary. So I love mm -hmm. that crypto embodies that really well. We now use the word crypto almost as generalist as the word create. But yeah, it is a call to basically anyone can find that niche for them. The other thing I was going to say is that I was recently listening to the Team Ferris podcast with Dyson, the founder of the Dyson Vacuumers. Okay. His, his story is fascinating because he has a design education, but he never had a formal engineering training. Mm -hmm. And he says that he regrets it to some extent, but he defines having that engineering mindset as looking at something, wondering how it works, and asking yourself if it could work better. Mm -hmm. And I loved it because I feel that it was such an easy way to communicate that you don't have to be an engineer or you don't have to be a scientist. Have that kind of mindset just to, I mean, that's, I think that's a wonderful way of putting it. And that's like, I think the call to action we've been having in the community for quite a while because Mirror is so new and there's definitely, it's not solidified in any type of way where we try and say that this is polished and it's perfect in any way. So anybody from any background can probably come in and within 10 minutes and figure out a way where they can improve it. And that's usually where I try and make it really tangible for people. I say, hey, just come into the system, join any community you'd like. If you see a way where you can be helpful or you can 
fix something or make it better, submit and let's try and incentivize you to make your, I see it as, again, it's the community's home. We're just holding onto funds for it, whatever you want to call it. So it's almost like you go into your own home and you see something that's wrong and you you'd want to fix it regardless. And so all we're really doing is incentivizing people to continue fixing their own home. But crypto in that sense is a special place and it has features that we don't have in the normal world or that we're losing. One of them is curiosity. So that engineering mindset, Mindset, Tyson named it, I would call it curiosity. Being able to question things and just wonder, even if it's not going to be your career, it's not going to make you money. It's not going to be even anything actionable. It's just having the curiosity. Like for instance, I, in the suburb that I'm living now, it's these little Victorian terrace houses. Mm-hmm. And as I walk, I notice that some of them, I love architecture, they're beautiful, but some of them have really like colorful doors, red, blue, green, not all of them. Mine has green, but that was painted in the 1700s. It looks horrible. And it's so just cool. a curiosity of, I'm wondering if there's any story behind it. And I'm wondering if I wanted to paint my door, is there an approval process for the colors? And can you coordinate with your neighbors so that you have a street of amazing looking doors? It's just been curious. Like we mm. just walk through life, and this is a stupid example, but I guess it is this everyday mundane example as it gets. Mm. And not many people wonder much. I have many examples of things that well, have I think not it's also in crypto in general, you're usually incentivized these days, especially like very economically to wonder and experiment. I think I always look back to like the Uniswap airdrop as being like the huge call to action where if you were curious about AMMs anytime over the past two or three years, you probably got a Uniswap airdrop. And then obviously a bunch of other dApps kind of did the same, but it's almost like this incentive to at least try something, at least go to Arbitrum so that maybe you can try out something new, at least go off to this side chain or that. It's so- huge. And I love that you're bringing in the Uniswap airdrop, which has been uh, replicated among other uh, projects and, and ecosystems. Because in the real world, we're told that curiosity killed the cat. Yeah, exactly. But in the crypto world, curiosity gave you money. Your I, don't know if, I don't know if you recall, but the Uniswap people were actually hilarious in my opinion because they worked out the airdrop to be twelve hundred dollars which was mm-hmm. the same amount the government was it, giving out yeah, in the states yeah yeah in, in the united COVID. states yeah yeah so curiosity is element one the second element which i think is even more important and has taken even more of a hit is humility and the ability to raise an issue or to criticize mm-hmm. politely Constructive feedback. Not even an example. Even a silly example. You go to someone's house and it's messy or it smells like wet dog or whatever it is. We don't mention it because we don't want to be rude to people. And you go to a restaurant and maybe the food quality has decreased or anything that we identify that could potentially be improved for some reason, and I understand we don't want to offend anyone, but for some reason we've, we've lost that ability to question why is it like this and to try to improve it. And it's really sad because especially during the last 18 months when we've gone through challenging times, that ability to question why is something like this, clearly there must be something wrong there. Maybe these people need help. Mm -hmm. Maybe we need to reassess the way that it is working Mm -hmm. because it could be better and we're not really pushing for progress. That's definitely a valid point. And I think I attribute like open source in general to this, where 
there's this like incentive again to look at a piece of code. It's open for everyone's, you know, putting issues and putting pull requests. And you're like, you're incentive. Okay, well, I can just take this, fork the code, and make it better. You know, if you can, like, you're incentivized Spot to try at least. On. I had never thought about it that way, but it makes so much sense. And I think it really comes down to that culture of openness, but also about having choice and competition. Mm-hmm. Competition in the sense that anyone can contribute to a project. And I guess... Well, yeah, and the best code wins, right? But then best is different to different people. So then there could be exactly. four or five, so you six have... versions that actually get to survive and grow. Which is the beauty of the internet. Not many people not realize that because we have very large tech companies which, which serve most of our needs. Mm-hmm. But if you are an entrepreneur or you've got the curiosity engineering mindset, there's never been a better time to be alive because... The metaverse allows us to create as many versions of reality oh, or of beautiful. a project or of a service <laughs> as we want. Mm-hmm. I was explaining back in the day, the beautiful token crypto economics of like Bitcoin. People mm-hmm. were like, oh, it's going to get big enough that the banks are going to buy it. And I was like, yes, please let them buy it because yeah. they're going to buy all of us. And as millionaires, we're going to deploy a new Bitcoin. There's just something magical about having that code which can be yeah it's malleable right it's it can always it's accessible to everybody um anybody can change it and even bitcoin the whole like (laughs) i love the term fork wars (laughs) where you block wars either way like the idea that even if these rich powerful people they don't agree with the bitcoin ideas i I think you know calvin air for example with bitcoin what bitcoin cash uh, i'm Again, I'm, I'm Antiguan as well. So I know Calvin Air is up in Antigua doing his Bitcoin cash thing. But honestly, I love the idea that someone can just take Bitcoin, fork it, and deploy what they think is a better Bitcoin for their community, just like you can with any other blockchain. Yeah, it is a very interesting concept. It definitely needs to be put in context of our many buckets and who is doing what and who is questioning what. Mm-hmm. But I guess the good news for the end users are they can rise to any bucket they want and we are building solutions for them. I am convinced the masses are coming. I can tell you my prediction, but I'd like to hear yours first. When are we getting the first million users in the blockchain? Are they going to be on near and what will they be doing? I think it'll definitely be gaming. I do think it will happen on near in, I'd say 2022, possibly. I think the idea that like, Bridges will be deployed between most layer ones or even most layer twos soon will make it so that most end users don't even know they're using the blockchain. And so users will probably be using multiple blockchains and probably not notice. So in my opinion, I see it as like, for example, even with the Ronin sidechain and Axie Infinity having what 800,000 like people playing the game, but there's still some base level of economic stability that has to be on layer one Ethereum. There are certain aspects of that are going to be on deployed on multiple chains. And so in my opinion, it only makes sense that like a large video game would just deploy and they're probably going to have liquidity across multiple chains. I mean, people won't even know that they're using the blockchain. So I think gaming for sure though. I think like NFTs with gaming, DeFi, it all meshed together. I love gaming. I'll play games eight, nine hours a day and there's almost nothing else I'll do that much time in a day. So Brilliant. Well, I am happy to announce that I concur with you and I am not and have never been a gamer. So I think that (laughs) there is a lot to reaching the same conclusion but coming from very different angles. I I agree with you. I think that DeFi to me is fascinating. 
because it a hundred percent has product market fit. Mm-hmm. DeFi, the underlying chain, hit, hit a wall, and we're trying to work at how to scale that. The fascinating thing to me is that my hypothesis, my understanding, my, my, my perception is that DeFi was built by those early day visionaries that are building the infrastructure, the code. Mm-hmm. So we have to understand, these people are not in it for the money. They're in here, they're executing their vision, and they're mm-hmm. going for the kill. They've got a mission against the banks, against the regulators. <laughs> yep. They yep. believe they can build a better system, and they did. Now, credit where credit is due, I always poise the next question. How big can DeFi get? Because at the moment, all my friends are getting hundreds of thousands of dollars in mortgages on an income that is half what I make. Mm-hmm. I don't have any access to credit because the bank did not take my magic money. Mm-hmm. And the loans that you and I get from Avi are over collateralized. Yeah. So for me to take out a loan to buy the same property, I need to have, I don't even want to imagine how much quite money. Quite a bit more. Yeah, quite so a bit more. You can see how DeFi has a lot of potential, but it's very early days. And yeah. changing the everyday consumer mind to move into DeFi, I think it's just going to take longer. Now, gaming is the shit. <laughs> Because gaming people come in not really trying to start a revolution and yeah. take over the banks or, or, or the government. They come in for fun. And, and they're used, in my opinion, they're used to spending. Like when you talk to gamers, they're used to spending consistently, paying money every month, every week, every That's year. That's where it gets wild. Because mm-hmm. it is possible. And I know that people that are into gaming, they've got gaming has been improving over time. We know how to build good experiences. We know how to build worlds. We know how to build experiences where it's going to get wild is that experience on speed. Cause now we're going to be able to add the spending component, which they already have, but plug it into ownership in the way that mm-hmm. people see NFTs now and DeFi intra game. Yeah. There are going That's to be the proper there. game economies in the same way that we've got people analyzing the economy of Argentina. They're going mm-hmm. to be analyzing the economy within these games. Mm-hmm. And I think for somebody whose brain is already geared into understanding the dynamics of that world and accepting the dynamics of that world, this gamification element is going to be the wildest loop we're ever going to see. And even Axie Infinity proves it. Yeah. You I make love using that as a case study where you can fully see how gaming can take over. And I've played Axie for a long time. It's it's arguably not that fun. It's just economically viable. So, it is. As you said, if we know how to create wonderfully entertaining experiences. And so once we figure out how to mesh those experiences with, again, DeFi, proof of stake, being able to jump from experience to experience safely and securely. So instead of having to like, I was a World of Warcraft gamer for a long time, instead of dumping all your assets into one game and then being like, oh, I quit. And then you lose your guild, you lose your friends, you lose your experience, your gear, being able to just jump between games, jump between ecosystems, uh, across bridges, across chains. It's going to be quite a fun uh, next couple of years, in my opinion. It is literally the metaverse. I'm also optimistic in terms of gaming being the frontier to hit one mil and near being the place for it. I've mentioned Human Guild. There may be other groups as well. Amazing work. Yeah. There's a new games guild Ilya as well. Just, Ilya just coded 
a dragon game on his flight. <laughs> Seems like the coolest thing I've seen over the past. He's a wizard. Like, Twenty-four hours. He's a wizard. Um, I saw that and I was like, "What do you mean you coded a smart contract over your flight?" But it was lost in translation. I thought he meant he. Cause you know how in English you can say, "Oh, I did something mm. on the fly." Yeah. Or on the fly, which means that you yeah, did something yeah. in a brief amount yeah. of time. It's not literally on a plane. Um, no, just how? He's yeah. I can't keep doing it because I'm too busy. I'm like, what do you mean too busy? Isn't the flight busy? No, he was like, that was his downtime to get a whole game. My opinion also shows like how easy it is like to build something on Nier where well, maybe you're not galaxy brain like Ilya. You're still no rush, no assembly script. You know how to build something in a Web3 environment. You can come on Nier, build your application, build your game and, and get your... You know, Ilya, probably not the best example, but certainly the takeaway is you have to get started. Your mm. game may not be the best off the gates, but just getting acquainted with the tooling, it's definitely going to be fun to build. Getting some early people, like, I think that's the problem. People need to just start taking action. I would have never felt qualified to apply for everything that I'm doing now. I just started doing something completely different and things have evolved over time. I'm learning new things every day. And actually, fun fact, I did apply for a community role within Nier and I never heard back. That's definitely uh, community's loss, in my opinion. Uh, but I think that's the beauty. And the crazy thing, I talked to James one-on-one. I was like, hey, James, I'm going to apply. And he's like, hey, just so you know, we've received a lot of applications now. Like, it's a bit late in the process. I guess that I wasn't expecting much, but yeah, I never heard back. <laughs> to the, the new hire, the person that took that role is amazing. Um, so I'm not going to say anything more about it. But... <laughs> <laughs> But no, I definitely would agree. Like even for example, there is the near gaming guild. There's always community. So in my opinion, it's always just I agree with you. Get started. My again, my first forage into near was jumping into the create based Telegram, saying, "Hey, I can build in CryptoVoxels. I'll build a guild parcel in CryptoVoxels," and that was what I could do. And it was fun. I learned more about building in CryptoVoxels. It was my. I didn't really change what I was doing, anyways. And I earned my first, I think, like 100 near or something like that. I don't know. By the way, I'll try to remember. That's why I say it out loud because I edited it out and just included. Mm. I'll include in the show notes the link to your website, uh, the Marmite That's Foundation, yeah. which in turn has the links to your CryptoVoxels and other metaverses. Yeah. Because I loved that I saw it just before the podcast and my mind is blown away and I realized, <laughs> oh my God, I know nothing about the metaverse. And so, yeah, it's, it's a good example. That's what it's to try and explain like that people can just for example if you launch a store on Mintbase, they give you a virtual like parcel which is super cool and it's not as difficult as some people think it is to start journeying to the universe to start minting your first nft so the marmaj foundation honestly is literally just there to provide support our very ambitious goal is provide perceived social support to all seven plus billion people on the planet so even if we can't actually support them as long as they know that, hey, there's this ecosystem that could support us, that's a benefit. And I think Near does that already by having this blockchain ecosystem that you could build on, you could go submit a proposal to. It's trying to you know, extend that ideology, I suppose. That is a brilliant way of wrapping this up. Only awesome, because we've awesome. been going for two hours and I Very feel so sorry yeah. for both myself <laughs> having to edit this. I know that you're also way past your bedtime, probably. Definitely. But uh, it's been now, fun to chat for sure. Had anything, anything else that you want to add? Any upcoming release? Any alpha leaks? Any, anything to plug? 
Yeah, n- nothing specific. Just get involved. I feel like a lot of people feel scared about getting involved with crypto or what is an NFT, what is DeFi, and all these questions. And if anyone's curious about any of those questions, I think the near ecosystem is, is like the best place to start learning as you go. Chloe, thanks so much. You've been an amazing guest. It honestly does not feel like it's been two hours. I swear I could keep going, although I would need a toilet break. <laughs> it's been a lot of fun. Thank you so much, Alejandro. Thank you. Uh, Alex, we ABB. must have you back. And yeah, Sounds please keep us updated where to find us everywhere on the Twitter, the Telegram, the Discord, your YouTube as well. Perfect. I'm looking forward to this coming out live as well. And, Give or take two or three weeks. Awesome. Yeah, it's uh, a good time.